Welcome, everybody, to another installment of Podcast 99. Changing it up a bit, I'm Parks Miller, here with Ryan Lichten. Yeah. We are, we are going forward with this. I cannot believe that we've gotten this far, and we are, you know, somewhere roughly about halfway through this festival, still going strong. This is one of our legend episodes. Yeah. It's about Limp Biscuit. This is, which, like, the legend. There's just so much going on here. This is this is this is crazy. I want to before we which ties into Limp Bizkit. I want to give a quick shout out to my dear mother who has up until this point listened to every single episode. And uh, I applaud her on that because we use language that she does not use around the house. (laughs) And we talk about things that she doesn't like to talk about. And we talk about music that she definitely doesn't like to listen to. And that brings us back to Limp Bizkit. Um, I think that Ryan and I are both of the age where this band, unfortunately, uh, had, a, had a lot to do with our adolescence. Uh, we're, yeah. we're of that age where like 13, 14, where Limp Bizkit was a huge band and actually meant something. And, you know, it's it seems like such a head scratcher now. Like, how how did this happen? But this this to me is the most 1999 things, bands, just events that could happen is Limp Bizkit. And Limp Bizkit playing at Woodstock 1999 is just such such a, so telling of the times. Yes. And there's just so much to unpack here. And I've, I've been sitting, because we're, you know, I'm on East Coast and he's on West Coast. So it's about 6.30 my time. I have woke up at like 9 a.m. Just <laughs> I've been thinking about this all day. Yeah, this is definitely I'm our so most sure. watched set, like collectively, like, Anytime you sit down with someone, like, and, you, and they're like, so, like, tell me about Woodstock. I'm like, well, do you want to, like, watch one? Everyone wants to watch Limp Biscuit. Every media right. outlet, the, the fucking Tao of Woodstock 99 all boils down to Limp Biscuit. This, I'm sure, as, like, a listener at home, this is the episode that you've been waiting for us to get to if you know anything about Woodstock 99. This is, there's going to be other legends after Limp Biscuit. But this is the legend of For legends. Sure. These are what we've considered to be the godfathers of Woodstock 99. Uh, for a lot of reasons, mainly being they're the band most tied in to Woodstock 99 as a whole, but especially the negative stuff. They got the most heat. They And, and just on a surface cursory level, if you were to search Woodstock 99, Limp Bizkit's performance is going to come up as... One of the first results and, you know, the biggest thing was that saying that they were blamed for a lot of the riots and a lot of the bad stuff, including the vandalism that went down. They took the most heat more than any other band for all the nasty shit that happened at Woodstock. Completely. Yes. Yeah. Easily. But it's like, and and you know, some of these other bands that have played Woodstock, like some bands were, are, you know, still huge and kind of exactly where they, where they would be like, you know, Dave Matthews band or Alanis Morissette or. You, you know, some of these other bands like Corn even just, you know, played in Mexico I mean, to a fucking stadium. Metallica, huge, Red Hot Chili yeah. Peppers. You know, yeah. I mean, there's some bands mm-hmm. that are huge. But Limp Bizkit is one of those bands where now it's like they're, they're starting to play a lot of shows. And they still do really well uh, in other parts of the world. But in America, it's definitely a big nostalgia trip for a lot of people. You know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. It's definitely a tongue in cheek right. kind of fandom. Uh, there's a lot of irony attached to people that like them Absolutely. or 
pose like they like them or, or what have you. And it's because they are, like you said, like the most 99 band. It's like when people think rap metal or new metal, this is the band that that they think of. You know what I mean? They're like, this the- is pro- this has got to be one of the top. If you just do a word association game with new metal. Yeah, this is because you have the 90s. You have like the 90s. Right. And you have all these things that people associate like Nickelodeon, Nirvana, whatever. Like you have these big 90s things. But then you have like night, the late 90s, like 98, 99. Right. Because the thing about Limp Bizkit is like their cultural relevance was for a very brief period of time. But it was so big while it was happening right i mean really like 98 to 2001 is when they were everywhere and then you have these residual trail-offs but you're talking about a three-year time period i i would say to go from like zero to 100 i mean they were huge right huge 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 and we're gonna talk about that part of me right (sighs) yeah it's a little limbiscuit crowd (laughs) action for you there uh i'm getting really into the spirit (laughs) yeah of it because you know the, cracking a big big old beer i can see oh big old beer for limp dude i had to wait in line at the fucking yeah. beer gardens <laughs> they tried to give me two tickets i wasn't having that made them make them fork them over uh so well, i paid 50 dollars for my great malenko shirt that i'm wearing so. uh, d- yeah we are basically i'm wearing a woodstock 99 <laughs> shirt this is a limp biscuit episode is a huge fucking deal <laughs> to us this is it's, it's a big deal it's it's we, we know and, that and we've yeah, hit the curve right. there is a, uh, there is like a nostalgia thing I think it's that it's that thing where you like you're you're really into it when you're like this impressionable idiotic teenager and then you get into this phase of like you're like I can't believe I listened to that music and then you try to like find whatever you deem is like the coolest music right. out there. I don't there. like Limp Bizkit. I like Radiohead. And you're like, "You know what? I love this stuff, but you know what? Fuck it. I, I loved it. And now it's like I can enjoy it still. Like actually me and uh, my buddy and my bandmate, Chris, uh, for his birthday, I went to Savannah. We did Nookie for uh, karaoke. For some reason, um, when you said it, we went like to Savannah, couple- I, like I thought it was going to be we went to Savannah, did some drugs and then did Nookie at karaoke. Like I, was, I wasn't expecting <laughs> to come first. <laughs> no, it, it ramped up quick. Or but I thought yeah, you were I just going to end with the- we did Nookie. I was like, you guys had sex with each other? <laughs> we did nookie. Oh, I, I did a little research on the word nookie too. We'll get into that as well. Oh, very good. Um, but no, it was funny because uh, there was like maybe six or seven, like kind of looked like twenty-one-year-old college women there, and they were, they seemed to be enjoying it somewhat. They're like, oh yeah, like I felt like they were kind of enjoying the karaoke for the, the trendy thing. Like Fred Durst is in a ton of memes right now, but, but there was this one dude who looked like a little bit older than us. And after we did our karaoke, he was like, hell yeah. Like, <laughs> one guy like legitimately loved it. Seven uh, art school girls ironically loved it. Oh yeah, um, exactly. So hey, that's well, where we're at. I, dude, I win, win, dude. Attempting. What's that? Win, 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 win. Exactly. You didn't get your you ass kicked bump. and you might've gotten a number, dude. <laughs> Maybe so. I didn't get any numbers for my uh, karaoke rendition of Limp Bizkit. No. Um, the only other personal note I'll say is that a friend of mine and I are attempting a Limp Bizkit cover band. Uh, this is like a little pet project thing of both <laughs> of us. And I will say it's been a lot more challenging than I realized to actually pull it off. Because again, the the quality of their music is highly subjective. I mean, most people will tell you that it's awful, but if we're going to do it, we have to pull it off. And so we have to sound like this very particular sound of music, even if to a lot of people that is a very shitty sound of music, we have to sound like this very particular style of shitty music. 
And so trying to get into that has been uh, quite a challenge. But I mean, hopefully if we can get that band going, I could see there being some sort of Podcast 99 Limp Biscuit cover band collaboration. Uh, but oh, again, yeah. In the, oh, yeah, my... dude, we're going to collab. I fucks with the vision. I fucks with the vision heavy. Mm-hmm. Fam. Yeah. Uh, oh, so yeah. But so the let's thing get into, is, though, because here's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they were. It's so weird that they were so popular. So we're going to have Ryan. Ryan's going to ha- try to help explain. We're, we got to do a little gr- groundwork as like how Limp Bizkit got to be so popular. Right. And the thing we got to start with is rap metal. Yes. Or and rap rock. Rap rock, rap metal. And yeah, because that's the thing. It's like when people think of that genre of music, they think Limp Bizkit. But it goes way further back than that. And it just... Got it just boiled over when it hit Limp Bizkit because right after that, right after '99, pretty much the year 2000, 2001, it drops off and that shit will you know has never seen top ten charting hits since. Yeah, you know, so it's like you could you could argue Lincoln Park, Lincoln Park definitely took the yeah. rap rock thing, and then they had they extended it a few years past. Yeah, beyond that, no doubt, and yeah, was, okay, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. Lincoln Park and Lincoln Park actually might have even surpassed some of these new metal predecessors, like for sure. You know what I mean? They were real, real massive. Uh, you know, I, anyways. Yeah. There, there was like, a, I was feeling like a, a bad joke coming. So I'm switching gears. So the history, of, <laughs> <laughs> the history of rap metal. Um, so the first thing that you'll, and I, you know, I, I, I cracked open a couple books for, for this one. There's one called rocking in time. It was a, it's a textbook that that's used at a couple different uh, universities, at least out here in California for history of rock and roll or history of music classes. And there is a chapter called heavy metal gumbo. And it's about how all these other genres got thrown into, into that eventually becoming bands like Limp Bizkit and Korn. And even though they're two very different bands, they're still lumped into this new metal genre. Um, and one thing that we'll find is not all new metal is rap metal, but all rap metal True. is new metal. That's the thing. Yes. Okay. So there's bands that are new <laughs> yeah. metal bands that don't do the rap thing. It's not, you know, there's no scratching, no turntables, but any mm-hmm. band that does have that is a new metal band. So the first yes. instance that anyone will tell you is in 1986 when Aerosmith and Run DMC came out with Walk This Way. That's the first time you had people that were legendary for being rockers you know, combining with a a group that was, you know, legendary rappers for this new kind of thing. And rap has always sampled songs. That's not a a new thing, but it was new to like have this thought that, Oh, you can actually do it live. Like you can rap over Mm -hmm. a band and it doesn't have to be with the DJ. That's how simple, you know, that's how simple like evolution of music is. It's like these ideas. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh, you can actually just play this on instruments. Like that's how slow it progresses. Nowadays it's like, Oh yeah, you can take this, that and this, throw it on the computer and bam, back then it's like, that's how slow music evolution was. It like took them years. And it's crazy. Right. And if you go back to that Aerosmith run DMC collaboration, the whole thing is that run DMC is just actually doing Aerosmith's lyrics, but like rappers, like when you listen to it, you're like this, this song is so simple. But it was such a big deal in the 80s. It was major. It was explosive, to say the least. Yeah. So then, you know, the the next example that you'll see cited is uh, the Beastie Boys song, you know, Fight for Your Right. Fight for Your Right to Party. Um, Mm -hmm. The guitar on that was, was, I believe, supplied by Kerry King of Slayer. Um, that, yes. that, that's who did. So you, again, you see these rappers and Beastie Boys, you know, they're a little different. They have their roots in punk and hardcore. So that wasn't that crazy. But just the the idea of having like the the rap backing music be melodic rock, like riff driven rock with rapping over it. Mm-hmm. That's like the next you, you see it. And I would say that 
the kind of rap metal that Limp Bizkit did, their specific brand is definitely more embedded in the Beastie Boys fight for your right world than it is the Run DMC Aerosmith world. But, right. you know, that, but you can see where it's going. Goosey, and then after that, nonsensical shit, you have, you know, in terms of new metal, the biggest rap metal influence is when Public Enemy got together with Anthrax and did the album Bring the Noise. That's huge. Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. everyone now you're taking. Because now you're taking an act because, you know, Aerosmith was still classic rock. You're, Anthrax, you're taking like one of the big four like thrash metal bands. Right. And mixing it with rap. Well, and also, so you know, actual metal. Yeah, it, it's it's real metal. It was respected metal. Right. And, you know, I mean, not mm-hmm. that Slayer wasn't. But the thing is, is like you wouldn't know that someone actually laid down the guitar for for that Beastie Boys song, whereas Public right. Enemy and Anthrax wrote songs together. You know, so that's the first right. effort you see of people actually creating this style of music together you know what i mean like run dmc mm-hmm. had sampled aerosmith before and the beastie boys kind of like you know use the guitar riff as a sample this is a rap group getting together with a metal group to make something new so Wes right. borland the guitarist of limb Bizkit, he cites that album as being the most influential as far as his work with limb mm-hmm. and i mean rob zombie said that you know with, with white zombie creating it's it's this idea of having these funky driving beats with with heavy melodic stuff over it you know, right. And and it starts right. with with Public Enemy and Anthrax in, in the way that we know it now. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and that, you know, continues. And then you start seeing bands come up in the early 90s, like uh, Rage Against the Machine, Faith No More, like it were where there's it's no longer rappers getting together with groups. It's bands starting themselves like that. So, you know, mm-hmm. you have someone in the group rather than being just a lead singer, they're also rapping and it's all musicians. And then every once in a while, right. you know, like rage against the machine, Tom Morello, their guitarist, he'll do things that imitate scratching on like a DJ table, but it's his guitar. But then you start seeing bands start including that in and like in, you know, industrial bands kind of start opening the minds of other musicians. They're like, Oh, we can use samplers and all that stuff, but they're using it for hip hop right. purposes rather than, you know, weird right. industrial stuff. Um, and, and Rage Against the Machine's a big one because they're Woodstock 99 alums. And they are, because even with Anthrax and Public Enemy, you're still doing like, it still has that bit of a novelty of like, this is this band and this is this rapper and they're collaborating. Right. But then with Rage Against the Machine, it's an actual, they're their own contained unit. Yes. Where the singer of the band, ne- like, the singer of Rage Against the Machine never sings a note in any song. He only raps right. in their entire catalog, right. pretty much. And so you start seeing that kind of change into bands like um, like Korn or or even, even Slipknot to an extent, where there's members that have these hip-hop influences that are finding their way into the music in completely different ways. So it's like, for instance, mm-hmm. Fieldy, the basis of Korn, he plays his bass like it's a like it's a drum machine, like, like it's a percussion instrument. And he's right. always said that. Now, it doesn't come across like that. And even though Korn does have songs that they've done with Ice Cube or they do All in the Family with Limp Bizkit, where it's like a diss track between Jonathan Davis and Fred Durst, and it's it's very rappy. They're not a rap metal band uh, by right. any extent. But they're, they're influenced by, by hip-hop culture. Exactly. So you start seeing this split off of that. And so people, mm-hmm. you know, that are wondering how, but what brings us to Limp Bizkit? Like, how did Limp Bizkit become right. the biggest band in the fucking world when they're, mm-hmm. you know, if you were to try and tell a loser poser music head that Limp Bizkit mm-hmm. is just as musically important as Public Enemy with Anthrax, they're going to argue with you all day, <laughs> but it's, it totally makes sense. And they're all part of the same pool. And I call it the cronut effect. Okay. You guys remember. <laughs> yeah, tell us about the cronut. Yeah. Do you guys remember cronuts? The, 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 the croissant donut. 
treat. You you mentioned it last night in preparing for this episode. I had to look it up, and I know about squaggles. <laughs> you shut the fuck up about a squaggle. I don't. I don't think I've ever seen a crow. I've never seen one in person uh, because I missed the wave. But that's the thing. So New metal out. in the nineties, okay. rap metal was a wave. And it, it peaks yes. and then it crashes down and it washes up to shore never to be seen again. And that's kind of what happened right. with the cronut. So the cronut mm-hmm. a few years ago, I want to say within the last 10 years, was a sensational snack food. It was, oh, my God, it's croissants, it's donuts, it's this new artesian, you know, <laughs> fucking dessert breakfast. What is it? I don't know. It's a cronut. It's crazy. And then it was everywhere. Then you start seeing yeah. the next place pop up. It was like created in New York right. or something. It's like, that's the only place you can get the cronut. And then they open up a cronut place in L.A. And then cronut places start popping up everywhere. Now everyone knows what a cronut is. Then you start seeing the clickbait where it's like top 10 cronuts. You got to eat. You got to get mm. this cronut. This guy put Nutella in his cronut. And now yeah. no one wants a fucking cronut. And you couldn't even go into the no. store and find one because we out cronuted no, no. ourselves. And that's what we did with new metal. It's oversaturation until it hits such a fucking peak that it can't get any bigger. It can't be any more of itself. If that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like there, mm. there couldn't be a band more rap metal, more new metal than Limp Bizkit ever. They're, they're, that's right. that's as far as you could push it because even you know Lincoln Park who came after all this and saw huge and huge success up until they ended after their singer unfortunately killed himself you know mm-hmm. it's they're a toned down version they're a much more tighter kind of collected you know like uh, you know musically more collected you, version of this sound you know what I, I mean? mean you could very much argue that you know people took Lincoln Park's music a lot more seriously yes but it's because the lyrical content Though that has a lot to limp biscuit while they do have songs about breakups and and and, you know, damaged homes and things like that. They are a party band. And that's what I mean. They're they're a cronut. It's it's so good. It's so tasty. (laughs) But no one wants cronuts anymore. We've had a cronut. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And and it's so specific. It's such a specific dish that they're like you just have to wipe the whole slate clean after that and start with something new. You could say maybe if you you liked crow mags and then you also liked crow nuts, you maybe would like limp biscuit. <laughs> I don't know, dude. Actually, like, if you, the eyes of tomorrow by the crow mags starts the dude the band the crow mag hardcore band uh, eyes of tomorrow it starts with like a fucking like scratch like a a, a turntable right. scratch. So you didn't even know that mm-hmm. shit probably. <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah, I, I mean, but part of it is that they're. Yeah. Like if you, we've dug deep and like I mean Limp Bizkit does have like they they do name check these you know pretty well respected uh, musicians and bands and it's just this bizarre thing where they took all these influences because I mean again I mean I know another thing just the 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 incredibly influential like the grunge angst from a band like Nirvana was so influ- influential to so many 90s bands and Fred Durst has talked about that too right and you you see so you get this like third second or third wave or like third wave of, <laughs> of grunge where it's like you get you're getting you're getting this anti-authority rap this like aggressiveness this like fuck you attitude from rap then you're getting the like aggressive music from metal and then you're also getting this like incredible sort of like self-pity like something that maybe started as like self-reflection that yeah the angst but then and then it's like self-pity and they're all like it's all mixed together and it happened it just it was happened so fast yes and it burned so bright yeah so you have the cronut i will say this is this is my little theory. I've still yet to see it truly 
come to fruition. But this has been my theory for a minute is like just in the way that you would maybe just take one look at a picture of Limp Biscuit or watch one Limp Biscuit video and be like, how was this so popular? I want to argue that like there's a current style of trap that like the Takashi 69 and the little pump I were like 100% agree like, with you. They look like such clowns and I really feel like it's this it's the it's the nines. Like we're in 2019, yes. like this was 99. Yes. Like it's just like in 2009 like everyone had a floppy hat and a ukulele. It's like this thing where it, it I <laughs> Who feel the like fuck at the were you hanging out with? Decade, <laughs> everything just gets like super duper trend mashed up and I like I really feel like in 5 years like people with like tattoos on their faces and like rainbow skittle dreadlocks like people are just like god that's so 2019 that looks terrible yeah but you can't like take a bag full of your old face tattoos and give them to goodwill but you can do that with your old band (laughs) shirts you know you can do that with adidas shell well i mean i'll I'll take this a step further and i've always said this like you know everyone always talks about hair metal being destroyed by grunge right but there's really nothing like well i guess in the 70s you had punk which was like the the new upcoming thing that then became commercialized you know what i mean no but but disco i I would argue disco falls into my disco and hair metal would be the night to my okay i'll I'll take that yeah and i but i and i love disco i love everything about all the i love music and all yeah me too no no but but again if you look at the nine so it's like yeah the, like 70s the had, look at just like the hippie movement right too. which which died yeah. in 69 then you had the right. disco in the 70s which was this cultural movement there was a look all the bands sounded the same that people were being signed and paid millions of dollars because they fit into a mold then in the 80s right. you have that with hair metal bands in the 90s right. you had that with grunge at the first part then it became because again things started moving faster so you have grunge in the right. first half then it becomes new metal and then in, mm-hmm. in the 2000s it was it was you know boy bands Indeed. pop stars you know, things right. like that. And then after that, I argue that you have like the emo screamo bands like of the Warp Tour, like Heyday, right. where they there was a look. There was a specific look, a specific sound. You couldn't really tell the difference between a lot of the acts, but that's what was selling. And right. then now the thing is, yeah, like these SoundCloud based, you know, like trap guys that all have face tattoos. They all do their hair kind of the same way. They all talk about the same things. There's a sound. You can't tell the difference between them unless you're like really super <laughs> into it. And and right. it's already on its way out to make room for this next phase. You know what I mean? Which right. who knows it'll show yeah. itself in a, in two years from now or three years from now. Right. But yeah, so it comes and in mean, waves and Limp Bizkit was on the fucking top of their wave. They were, they were on the top. And so we've given you a little, you know, rap metal, funk metal, or new metal, whatever you want to call it uh, thing. So we're going to get, we're going to get into uh, just a little bit of backstory about Limp Bizkit. Yeah. Where, where did the biz start? Um, we're going to, we're going to give you the biz on the kit. And I, <laughs> I have, I, I've honestly been stressed out because I know so much unnecessary information about Limp Bizkit that I was just really stressing. Like, how do I like separate this in a way that like, so that someone listening to this will actually find this interesting. So I've, <laughs> Damn, I feel dude, like I've done my parks know my so much about just... Limp Bizkit. He's, he's outdone your interest in the subject. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, I've watched this. Woodstock performance so many times that I mean I'm convinced that it's a terrible performance at this point though uh we also do want to say that we do love Limp Bizkit yes and and, and, and know, they are not to blame yeah. is to try and maybe get one of them on the show oh, uh, but life I've, goals. I've watched a bunch of their live footage I don't think that it's the best uh sounding but we'll get into that as well um but yeah I watched this like unauthorized like hour-long Limp Bizkit documentary that I found on YouTube which is incredible um and that takes place mainly in Jacksonville, Florida, which is where they're from. Uh, I don't, Ryan, have you ever been to Jacksonville, Florida? I've been to Disney World, Florida, and that is it. Okay. 
Well, Florida, of course, kind of has its own rep. Uh, Jacksonville is like even amongst the reputation of Florida itself, like Jacksonville is like this extra has like an extra added on top. Extra Florida reputation. Florida on the side. Yeah, it's like Florida with Florida on the side. Um, it's, <laughs> it's first off, it's like the largest. I think it's the largest land mass city in the U.S. Like it takes up the most space. Jacksonville. Um, yeah, Jacksonville. It's like actually the physically on a map, the biggest city in the U.S. That's in terms fucking of like crazy. Actual, like footprint. Yeah, it's crazy. It's just really big and just in your face. And it's like I've been to the beach there and it's super in your face and it makes perfect sense like this is the breeding ground of limp biscuit um so fred durst he didn't grow up there he grew up in north carolina but he moved there when he was a kid so he grew up there he had an interest in tattooing skateboarding and rapping nice um, and you guys all and you guys all know what fred durst looks like if not look him <laughs> up so just think about like a 13 year old fred durst he's if you don't know what fred durst Hold on. If you don't know what Fred Durst <laughs> yeah. looks like, why the fuck are you even listening right, like this exactly, far? No. <laughs> but yeah. keep listening and Google but, that. So he so he got together with uh, bass player Sam Rivers and uh, Sam Rivers cousin, uh, John Otto, who was an incredibly talented jazz drummer, still is. Um, and they kind of like they they wanted to you know make a band. So they start doing this. And then later on, they get uh Wes Borland, the guitar player. Yes, who, the god. Of you know, is yeah, the guy who like where he's like looks way different than everyone else. He wears crazy makeup. He did. He introduced me to the concept of color contacts, where it makes you look like you have humongous pupils. Um, so he was kind of like this weird oddball guy who didn't like totally fit in with them, but he was like an amazing guitar player. So they were like, yeah, we got to have you. So he he's kind of his thing is he's always needed a lot of convincing from Limp Biscuit. Right. It's like, yeah, what you are in Limp Biscuit. And you know, West Borland. Like, oh, fine. Yeah. We we've talked about him b- before. And if you are subscribed to our Patreon and you hear our um our commentary on the Limp Biscuit set, we actually sat in with uh our our producer Gray Holger from Condradict Sound. And who had never watched it has no interest in any of this shit at all. He was just dumbfounded by West Borland's appearance. Like and I kind of mm-hmm. am too. Like you could tell West Borland right. arbitrarily if he was not in Limp Bizkit, Limp Bizkit would be the number one band he would talk shit on. Yeah, right. I, and that's and that's yeah. kind of his thing because he he quit after at the peak of their popularity because he was kind of like I hate this, but he was also so instrumental, so crucial to them being successful because he's like this nuts guitar player, and so he was able to like give it something that where where like there there are many ways in which like probably if Fred. <laughs> Sam and John Otto were just doing it like where they would definitely still be gigging around in Jacksonville, but they did have these like really crucial elements added, which right. you have you to know, have the guitarist with mystique, it. whether it's the guitarist or mm-hmm. not, you have to have that person with It's like, you know, and almost famous. It's like, I'm the guitarist with mystique. You're the charismatic front man. It's like, <laughs> right. you know, or, or, or back and forth or whatever it was, you know, it's like that kind of a thing. It's like, yeah, like you can, you can't just have everyone be the same in a band. It just doesn't work like that. You right. take any fucking famous band that's legendary and you'll see differences and you'll see that when, you know, they're backstage, they might not all be hanging out together. You know what I mean? It's right. like they all get along and they're all friends, but there are some definite like concrete ground level differences right. between them. And that's Wes yeah. and Limp Bizkit. 
You know, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, and, I describe and, him as, um, and I, I talk about this more on our, on our commentary of the, of the set, but I describe him as like the drag queen on your football team. Like he's so good mm-hmm. at playing football. We're all football mm-hmm. players though. We all wear uniforms, but he's like, well, I want to wear like a dress and makeup while I play. Right. And they're like, okay, well, like you're, we're not going to do that. Fuck that. Like we're right. not drag queen football mm-hmm. players. You're the drag queen, but you're so good. You dress however you want and we're still going to win the game. And like, so right. I, like that, that might be like a weird stretch, good. but like that's how I pick it. It's like picture a football team with one drag queen on the team, and that's mm. Westmoreland, right? And I mean that's that in crazy. the best yeah. way possible. No, absolutely. Yeah. And actually, I do. I want to give a, a tiny other shout out to my friend uh, Chris Childs, who I know listens to a bunch. I just spoke to him recently, and uh, when I was talking about this, he mentioned that he went to music school with the drummer of Westmoreland's side project, Big Dumb Face. Oh, which yeah. If you're interested, like this is big dumb face is total like clusterfuck music um, with like done by like crazy musicians. Uh, again, I know that we do have like some closet or not closet Limp Bizkit fans out there. And if you haven't checked out big dumb face, it's worth uh, going on. But again, not yeah. getting distracted. Right. So yeah. they, they get West. So they've got this band together. And of course, the big thing is the name limp biscuit i mean it immediately just it's a perfect name for them for a band that's going to be constantly having controversy followed around them and i found a quote of fred durst just talking about the decision for the name and he said i want people to pick up our cd and go oh limp biscuit they must suck so like (laughs) brilliant he he know he knew like that's the thing is he fred durst he was really he was like that hustling market guy like he was a marketing guy it's like when you go to a show and that guy comes up to you and he's like dude you gotta listen to my cd and you're just like god like get out of my face like fred durst was that guy yeah he was so persistent and so like i am going to make this happen that like it happened for this band yeah um and so they're just doing they start like getting this big cult following in jacksonville um they do things they do weird gags like one of the things is they covered faith by george michael which ended up being their biggest hit so that was like one of the that was like kind of like in their bag of tricks from the beginning right that was their breakout smash hit doing these like weird off the wall covers um which also i noticed a lot of new metal bands have these like really bizarre like 80s covers like uh orgy did blue monday and i feel like that i mean this might be me like stretching or thinking too much into it but like Bands like Limp Bizkit, maybe not them personally, but like the fan base and just the overall attitude. It's like music for like the jocks are like, oh, that's like gay. You know what I mean? Or like mm-hmm. if like in their music video, if one of them like was dressed as a chick, like that's like the funniest thing, you know, like pop punk bands right. from the 90s would do mm-hmm. that. So I feel like when like right. they would cover like, you know, if like a new metal band covered like a Britney Spears song or something, it's like a dig in the same kind of vein. You know what I mean? Like in the same right. vein right. where it's like, no, it's funny because it's like, dude, this song's fucking, you know, bubblegum like, fucking bullshit. Right. You know, it's not like it's like, oh, we could actually make a really cool cover of that. And like no one would expect it. And how cool would that be? That's that's yeah. I don't think that's the the thought. It's you know? it's, it's it's a piss take in itself, right? Um, and, and so that's... like Fred Durst or like Limp Bizkit doing uh, the Prince song, it's like I feel like I mean they've been doing that for a long time, but I also feel like they they've played on the MTV uh, New Year's Eve bash going right. ninety nine into two thousand. What yeah. better song could they have fucking played? I mean, not that they nailed it or anything, but like 
No. No, but you no, know what I mean? It, it, it I, works out. It seems perfect that that would be the song that they would cover for that, and maybe they were playing that in preparation. I don't know. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so do do we want to... I, I want to play a clip of them covering... Yeah, fuck it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is yeah, where? This is it. at the Shoreline Amphitheater? Yeah, the Shoreline Amphitheater, which I'll also get into um, before, right before we go to Woodstock, too. But this is... I found a cover of them performing 1999. So for, it's I mean, a doozy. I love Prince and that hurt. Like yeah. that hurt really bad. <laughs> like it's, I mean, even the George Michael one, I, I think I've just, heard it enough to where i like i like the the george michael cover that yeah Prince there's no doing is, that with this one uh, but i just wanted to dig that up in case anyone didn't know that existed and now you do know yes um yeah but so the, here's here's the the famous little legend about limp biscuit is that they were in jacksonville and <laughs> corn corn played and we probably talked about this in the corn episode but corn played in jacksonville fred durst he Tra- he cornered down Fieldy, convinced Fieldy from Corn to have a beer with him, and he gave Fieldy a tattoo. Fieldy hated the tattoo, but then was somehow convinced to listen to Limp Biscuit's demo and really liked it. And from there, they hooked Corn hooked up Limp Biscuit with their producer Ross Robinson, and they released their first album, Three Dollar Bill Y'all. Um, so again, I mean, just. Good old American buyer bootstraps hustling. He just yeah. He just that would never happen now. Corn. And um, the other crazy thing that contributed to their success was that they opened for House of Pain. Who, if you don't know, that's that big jump around song you've heard a million times. Yeah. And the DJ DJ Lethal, he was looking to do a new project because it was House of Pain's last tour. He heard Limp Bizkit opening for them, and he approached them, said he loves what they're doing, and so then they added. DJ Lethal to complete like their lineup. And that also brings me to another super duper 90s trend of having DJs in your metal band. Yeah. Or in your band, period, likes. dude. In your band, or, period. Because yeah, yeah. like in Sugar Ray period. had that fucking, yeah. uh, you had like, uh, they weren't like a huge Incubus band, but they had a giant it. hit. That band, Len, uh, with, you know, that mm-hmm. song yeah. Steal My Sunshine. Their whole right. album that that song is on is just like rap beats. But yeah, it's like, right. no, that was huge. You had to have the guy. And, most of the time, especially live, you can't ever really tell what they're doing. You know, in Limp Bizkit, there's specific right. moments where it's like centered around the fact that he's doing scratching. Mm-hmm. But for the right. most part, you really can't tell. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, and Kid Rock had, had it too. Yeah, it's like that was the thing yeah. that you did. You know, you, you had the DJ because right. it was the one thing that you could add that hadn't been done yet. Right. And you and there you go. And you've got the metal You've got the metal music instrumentation, and then you you've got the hip hop influence taking it a step further. Let's actually add a DJ because that was like Rage Against the Machines thing was like we don't have a DJ, right? But so they do that. Um, so they make this three dollar bill y'all album. Uh, it starts to kind of get a bunch of underground success. Uh, one big thing that was kind of a scandal at the time was that they they did a payola for their single counterfeit. And they actually paid a Portland radio station $5,000 to play that song 50 times. And this is just this little tidbit that seems to get mentioned a lot. It it, it just contributes to, it, it lays the groundwork for the controversy 
of Limp Bizkit and kind of it shows Fred Durst. He he's kind of like this like I will stop at nothing to right. Well, and he's a marketing a guy. Band. I mean, he 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 went on to do A and R like to be be a like the vice president of fucking Interscope Records. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like like he's. We could say what we want about Lynn Bizkit or whatever, but you can't knock the fact that that dude is like a fucking successful ass businessman, really smart with marketing. I mean, probably like from what everything I've heard, he is the coolest dude to hang out with. You know what I mean? I would love to hang out with Fred. He, he throws That's a he throws a jazz night in L.A. every Thursday night. You know, mm-hmm. and like I've had tons of friends yeah. that have went. I haven't gone yet. I'm uh, I always just miss it <laughs> right. or don't even think about it. I just like, oh, fuck. Yeah, I got to go to that. But like everyone's right. like, oh, yeah, he hangs out like he talks to you like, you know, whatever. And he just did a he just directed his first movie. You know what I mean? And just well, no, he no, just no seems not his like, first. No, no, he's done oh, like no, five or not. six movies. He oh, directed really? a movie starring John Travolta. Last oh, summer. so it's the first but movie anyone cared see. about. Right. But he. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God, he's never gonna come on the show. No, um, we love you, but, friend. No, but 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 part of it. See, part of it though is from the beginning. Even though we're making digs, people hated Lint Biscuit from the beginning, and even at even as early as '98. So their album came out '97. They did, I think, Warp Tour, Family Values Tour, and Ozfest in '98. And even already at this point, like as they're starting to escalate, people are already hating them. Um, right. You had. You ha- and so they address this. There's if you find you can find some really grainy footage of them from Ozfest in '98. They had a huge stage prop of this like shitty, disgusting toilet. I mean, this toilet is like 20 feet tall, and the way they would c- come out is Fred Durst would actually rise out of the toilet and say something <laughs> like, "I'm a human piece of shit." So they like that was kind of their thing. Is like Fred Durst like. I would say way more than any other new metal band is like he completely embraced and was like really like bring it on like you guys hate me right and they do you know, that during their set it. too at Woodstock they right. they bring a little bit of that in right yeah. and and people hated them uh, there you have on record uh, Tool Nine Inch Nails Faith No More Marilyn Manson uh, Eminem later all these uh, really big acts would all talk mad shit about Limp Bizkit but. One thing I noticed is none of those chumps played Woodstock 99. Mm. But at the same time, <laughs> now you listen to them and, and they're doing this like rap metal thing. And you listen to it and you're like, man, this is some like white bread rapping. Like how was this so popular? But at the same time, they were getting cosigns from Dr. Dre, Method Man, Red Man, DMX, Puff Daddy, like Exhibit, yeah. Timbaland, like, like these huge huge like i think there's like a snoop dog song where he like talked about limp biscuit like they they really were like legitimately cool this, guys like, to hang out with cool guy yeah because <laughs> he, they got this like they just hit it like right on the head um and 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 this is what con- and this is why i say like they are such the 1999 band of all the bands here because even i was looking at like the release dates and it's like you have bands like rage against the machine well their first album was 91 like they were already huge right you have a band like the chili peppers the chili peppers did have a really big album in 99 but they were they started in the 80s like they had tons of hits right yeah yeah, Cor- yeah. limbiscuit was fairly fresh yeah corn was already big like you know freak on a leash was 97 even kid rock like devil without a cause was 98 so like even just literally like a ba- like Limp Biscuit got so massive in the year 1999, and yeah, that's why. And, and then they, and that's cover. why they they had you know it's like 
people just think the 90s, but the 90s has is a 12-year decade to me because I feel like 2000, 2001 <laughs> still really count as, as mm-hmm. the 90s because we're starting to shake it off, you know what I mean? Like With right. other generations, you have some kind of moment that symbolizes the shedding of the old skin and, and you know, right. the introduction of the new guard or whatever. Mm. And we didn't really have that then because everyone thought the world was going to end because of Y2K, you know what I right. mean? Or there was this idea right. that like, it didn't fucking matter or that, you know what, in year 2000, anything fucking goes. So like, it's true. I don't know. There just wasn't that thing. And Limp Bizkit did see the real peak of their success after Woodstock 99 and probably in part because of it. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. they didn't headline. You know, when we when we get to the right. set, you're gonna like they weren't headliners, and uh, mm-hmm. you know they had a, a a great spot, but it turned out that no one knew how good that spot was until Limp Bizkit played it. You know what that's I mean? True. They that, that's they made that, it. They that, owned it. That's the thing. Yeah. So yeah, they did really yeah. explode. And I mean, the pressure, like, and, and you know, we talk about that when we talk about the MTV Tour Diaries on our Patreon episode, Patreon.com/slash Culture Dumps. Um, Mm -hmm. about, you know, like Wes Borland, he's having like a pretty hard time with like the trappings of fame and like, and I always thought that like, well, why, you know, that's how, that's when you're at your absolute peak. Aren't you kind of used to it by now? No, they weren't used to it at all. They had only had, you know, two years under their belt, you know, being like a huge band, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's really crazy. It jumped quickly. Right. But you also had, you had this thing where Fred Durst was really like, embracing and like trying to to have fame like on on their albums like you know if he had famous friends he would just get them to like phone call him and like leave him a voicemail right you know yeah. like I, th- I think one of the albums is just like mark Wahlberg is just like hey bud it's mark you know like I'm yeah just ben stiller is on one yeah and you're just yeah ben stiller and like it's having all these rappers and like he he name checks them and he would have, you know, he had Ben Stiller in his videos. He'd have Dr. Dre in his videos. Like he was actively, and that also makes it different than any of the other new metal bands. And this is also probably why ultimately they probably don't get the respect that say even a band like Korn does is because he was constantly digging for that fame and using it. Whereas other new metal bands are kind of like, we're dark and you know, we're messed up twisted. in the head. We're twisted up inside. But like Limp Bizkit's <laughs> like, yo, Christina Aguilera, like, you know, that was like, he had this whole thing with Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears. Like, yeah, he's just openly, but that's like, just cause I he's a smart a guy with good taste. You know, that had nothing. <laughs> I refuse to believe that that would, that had to do with uh fame. He's just a smart guy with good taste. Oh God. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Christina Aguilera famously said that he didn't get no nookie. Oh, um, man. So well, he got nookie I, I, at some point because, and we will get into this at some, probably on a Patreon or something when we just like do like nasty rehashes <laughs> for our own Woodstock 99 withdrawals. But Fred Durst did have a sex tape. Uh, yeah, and I've watched it. And, you watched it? Yeah. You found it? Yeah, you guys, you guys showed it to me. I never actually watched it. Oh my god, dude! Yeah, it. well, I gotta see it, but in private when I have some time to myself. <laughs> yeah, th- th- this gets into some real like tabloidy stuff. But yeah, yeah I did, but I, I mean, I it's important noting because if you're famous, if you're if you're famous enough to have a sex tape, you're famous enough to have your fucking head on a Pez dispenser. That's how I see it nowadays. That's it's like true. that's the low. That's if you have true. a sex tape and people give a shit, you're fucking famous. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So right. okay, totally get it. Get us to ninety nine right. now. So so, so where, where are they at? Okay. So the summer of 99 was a huge, huge thing for Limp Bizkit. So they have finished recording their follow-up to $3 Bill Y'all. They 
It's called Significant Other. They start this tour before the album's release and promote the Limp Tropolis tour with Kid Rock that we talk about in the Patreon. Um, and already that's kind of got a lot of controversy. I think I read something that the bassist Sam Rivers on the very first night of the tour got upset at security or something and he like broke his bass and like messed up his hand like the first night. Yeah, it was sound issues. Um, yeah, yeah. So he had to go right. to the hospital during the set. And then and then come back, but that's all the details right. you get on that because we need right. you to surprise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so 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 they're doing this tour. Um, June sixteenth, ninety nine, Nookie was released. That is, I would say, probably their most famous one. There's a couple others, maybe like Rollin' or My Way because of WWE. But yeah, Nookie, break stuff people will say, like, but if you know break stuff, it's because you know Limp Biscuit. If you don't really know about Limp Biscuit, you definitely probably remember the song Nookie if you were old enough to have it yeah. like watch TV at that time. I mean, honestly, that's that is how I discovered Limp Biscuit is because when I was like a complete idiot of a teenager trying to like grasp at something that was culture besides just like playing on the park. Like all of a sudden I was like, Oh, I have to like know about music. I bought a <laughs> copy of now three and uh nookie was on now three. And I was like, well, oh, wow. I guess I, I'm like, this is cool. So that, you know, nookie is how I discovered Limp Bizkit. Um, and two days later, I do want to mention that they played at this uh, concert um, at the Shoreline Amphitheater, which is in Mountain View, California, which I re- read is a little more near San Francisco. Uh, the only reason why I mentioned this concert is that's where the uh, clip of The Prince 1999 cover is from. Right. But uh, on this concert, it was a one-day uh, radio thing. You had Kid Rock, Limp Bizkit, Live, Lit, Moby, Red Hot Chili Peppers all played, Sugar Ray played, and as you know, Sugar Ray was supposed to play Woodstock, so it's almost like a little Woodstock pregame happening a month before. Damn. But for those, for those of you that are like into watching the Woodstock videos, it's worth looking up, look up June 18th, 1999 Shoreline Amphitheater, because the crowd shots, the people watching of this concert are incredible. And that's all I'll say about that. Um, but again, it's <laughs> like just a Forrest little Gump. side note. Uh, four days later, June 22nd, Significant Other is released. Uh, it peaked at number one. It had hits like Nookie, Break Stuff Rearranged. It knocked Backstreet Boys from the top of the charts. And uh, to this day, it has sold uh, over 16 million copies. God. Me included. Um, yeah, me too, so twice. Ju- yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So this is just like, this is within a month. Like, and so that's the thing is like, now you're talking like a month away from Woodstock. And so, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's one of those things where like, you know, you have Metallica that's an established band, but like Limp Bizkit, it's like, they're kind of like breaking at this very moment of Woodstock. Uh, then two weeks later, it was July 2nd, 99 is when Fred Durst was named vice president of A&R at Interscope Records. So like, this is just like one thing after the other, like huge success after the next happening. Um, I do also had a side note that to my knowledge, the only band that Fred Durst signed as vice president of A&R at Interscope was the band Puddle of Mud. Um, oh, that, yeah. Wait, he didn't. We can go into that. <laughs> oh, I thought he signed uh, 30 Seconds to Mars. Or was that just like. Did he? Well, it, oh, they're talking about it. All right. Well, maybe it, I'm, maybe that's a dig. Maybe I'm digging in. I don't, uh, I don't they, Yeah, we'll have to find it. Well, okay, so. again, guys, we cannot tell you how yeah, important we're, we're, it is that you subscribe to our Patreon account to, to <laughs> A, to help us out, but also just for your own uh, knowledge. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, there's like a very intense business phone call where Fred Durst is trying to sell a band to someone on the other line that has Jared Leto in it. 
So right. whether or not it was 30 yes. Seconds to Mars at the time, who knows? But it probably mm-hmm. was. Right. So, so yeah, that's a huge. They, um, we're, we're basically at Woodstock. But before we get there, uh, the only other things I want to mention is that I have a tiny clip from a MTV Spring Break performance that they oh, play. Dude, which is uh, amazing. Let's, let's play that real quick. Y'all ready to blow this boat up? What a so time a capsule. Yeah. Um, he blew up a boat. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, and again, I, I'm going to have to stop myself here because I could keep talking about Limp Bizkit and Fritters. I have to stop. The only thing that I'm going to say that relates back to Woodstock is that in 2001, Limp Bizkit played at this festival called Big Day Out in Sydney, Australia, and they were again uh, at the center of a lot of controversy because... There was another situation where the crowd was very out of control. It was really crazy. The mosh pit was nuts. The security couldn't handle it. Everyone was overheated. And uh, a 16-year-old named Jessica uh, Michalek, I think that's her name, Mm -hmm. she was crushed in the mosh pit, and she died in the hospital days later. Jeez. So so Limp Bizkit, it's not just Woodstock. I mean, they had these controversies, like, happening throughout you know what though um it's like yeah that's true and also even on the limptropolis too where like fred durst got into it with a security guard at, at one show and was like arrested and later let go but it's like i right. feel like with the stuff with the crowds they get a super bad rap especially when it comes to woodstock 99 and watching their set and then watching tons of other sets that they did like if you watch um we're gonna be doing uh uh, a side episode, a Patreon episode about the Family Values tour in 1998, which is absolutely fucking notorious and instrumental mm-hmm. in making new metal what it became uh, for that last little portion of the 90s. But yeah. like he he doesn't do anything to really make people fuck shit up. It's just the music. It's like the right tempo, the right distortion, the right amount of loud, the right amount of attitude. And mm-hmm. he really doesn't say anything negative. There, in no way, in any sets I've watched, have I seen him say, you know, like even anything relating to like fuck the authority or anything like that. You know what I mean? He right. really doesn't do anything like that. It's just right. the crowd's natural but, inherent reaction to the music. It's really wild. But I, I, I'm gonna have to like, you know, kind of slightly disagree in terms of just because I think we've talked a lot about their history and their impact, but. We, we should at least mention, you know, the lyrical content. Yes. Okay. Like, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I think that's where it comes from. I mean, like, Breaks up their big song. And the thing is, is I think the other element that, and just to kind of finish off the whole new metal phenomenon, is it you're going into this this grunge kind of I, me, angst thing. And so the thing about new metal is it's taking this aggression and it's it's giving it this outlet in a way, but in this very... I don't. How do you say it? It's just like messy. It's real sloppy, and it, like well, it's for the equivalent me, of punching totally the wall. Related. You know what I mean? Yeah, when you're, like when your mom tells you to clean like, your room, I get it because when I was like a 13 year old angsty teenager, I completely related to it. And it's just funny how now, when I, if I go back and listen to it, I'm like, man, like he sounds like a spoiled brat. You know, like it's <laughs> so just like fuck you. I don't care. Like it's almost like you know where you, you go. We're going back to you know rage, which you know, for better or worse, whatever you, at least the, there's a lot political of the lyrics, influence there. Like they, yeah, they're saying like, this is this thing. 
that, you know, whatever the government or a corporation is saying, like, this is that thing. And this is why something's bad. Right. But then like the limp, you, you fast forward seven years and Limp Bizkit's just like, it's bad. And I'm mad, you know? Right. And now yeah. I'm sad. It's just one like, of those. Well, no, he, he says it himself. He, it's, it's a more relatable anger. Like you can listen to Rage right. Against the Machine. And if you're not, if, if you're not in, like, I mean, they're a good band. Like for instance, me, like. I don't really give a shit about a lot of things in life. You know what I mean? So like when I listen to rage, I'm like, yeah, they're really good. But like, by no means does this make me want to like smash the system or whatever. And like, for sure there's like, you know, millions of people that, that did instill activism in there. Like, but then there was also the crowd that was just like, yeah, this is just like a good band. Limp Bizkit. It was like, there wasn't an enemy. It was just like, no, you're just mad because you're mad. They simplified that kind of anger and angst to where it was palatable for everyone, no matter where, if you're, you know, in like a destitute neighborhood or if you're in the suburbs living it up. It's like anyone could relate right. to that message of just like, it's you ever like, had one of those days where you just want to break something? You can have one of those right. days because you're in a war torn fucking country, you know, in somewhere isolated in the world and every day you have to struggle for food or because your mom fucking told you to clean your room and you feel like it's clean enough or you don't give a shit about your room. You right. know what I mean? It's like, like this generality see, that made you it. You see in yeah. science class. It, yeah. And now you're, and now your science teacher is not here, but this big plywood wall is, Damn. And that's, you know, yeah. and that's the thing is you're just going, <laughs> yeah, fuck that. Yeah, so exactly. I do think that, you know, and again, I'm not trying to, you know, we're going to toe the line with Limp Bizkit, but I think that the movement itself Definitely, you know, people talk about that phrase, you know, toxic masculinity. And you, you, if you just, just go, go through like a handful of new metal songs. Yeah. You, you yeah. Dude, I mean, if the concept is kind of about I'm going to say that Lim Bizkit out of and again, they were like the biggest of, of the 90s for sure. They are the rap like rap metal is Lim Bizkit, you know, for like for better or worse. That's the band really to cite. Right. Yeah, that's the there's like the most toxic masculinity going on in that set, right. and, well, you know. And it's not it, again. I don't necessarily blame them. It's just when you when you take when you know what you're talking about and you spill it out to everyone else, and they might not know exactly what you're going through, but they all relate to break stuff. Right. You don't have control of your message anymore. Mm-hmm. You know. Right. So exactly. he knows why he, he had that bad other, of a day, but he doesn't know other, why like, someone else did. You know. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and then the only other. Sp- you know, heavy subject matter are these like really bitter ex-girlfriend songs, which also does play into this sort of like, oh, like it's it's so one-sided. It's like Fred Durst is like, man, my ex is such a bitch. And then, but you, you never, there's never really a song that's like, well, man, maybe I did something wrong. <laughs> you know, maybe it's I'm al- the it's bitch. It's always like, man, it sucks to be me, <laughs> but it's never like, it sucks that I did that too. Right. And again, this is this is me like actually being a teenager and you know, I related to the music. So part of it is like me kind of growing up like, oh man, like there's a definite point where I have to like leave this behind because it's like I don't this lesson I can't this lesson can't really I can't really learn much more. Right. Yeah, you got yeah. You rang the chamois dry. Oh. This brings us to the set. We're on the east stage, yes. the main stage, the money stage. As our survivor Tony B dubbed it, which we love, we're talking now about eight oh five to nine oh five. That's their set times. Like eight oh five is when they started. I'm guessing again, you know, just like everything else, and at Woodstock '99 probably went a little bit later. But this is a peak time because the sun as is, is just coming down. Like when they start their set, it's it, the sun is still out, and by the end, because it's being filmed on pay per view and because it's a major show, it doesn't really look dark out. 
but it has this weird color tinge to everything because it is dark, but there's just so much light, like artificial light being pumped in and everyone's so sunburnt right. and like, it just looks fucking really eerie, but that's the timeline. It's yeah. It's it, it, by the end, there's this apocalyptic kind completely of glow to everything. And when it starts, it, it kind of has that too, but like not in the scheme of things. Like if you were just to watch the Limp Bizkit set, you'd be like, Oh wow, this is fucked up from the start, but it's, it's really not, you know, cause like Alanis Morissette played, uh, like right, right before him, you know what I mean? So it's like, mm-hmm. The attitude had to have changed. And yeah, was there a huge influx of hooligans for Limp Bizkit? Most likely. Um, and another thing so. that we learned through researching the Limp Bizkit set is that the pay-per-view videos that we see on YouTube, those are edited. There, there's generally uh, anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes cut out of each one uh, for one reason right. or another. So we've seen different versions. Um my favorite version, which I I think has been taken down uh, at, at this point, Vern Troyer of uh, Austin Powers movies, Mini Me, he was up on stage to announce Limp Bizkit, and he announces them in the way that they they intro themselves on their album Significant Other, where there's just this like weird beat, this weird intro, and a distorted voice that basically says, you know. If you want the best, go buy yourself a Backstreet Boys CD. But if you want right. the worst, you know, we listen to Limp Bizkit or whatever. And Vern Troyer does that. He's like, you want the worst? And again, like, I couldn't find it. Otherwise, we would play that right fucking now. And it killed yeah. me, dude. I searched forever. And I know I've seen it. And you know what? If I do mm-hmm. find it, because I feel like it might have been included in some of those, like, two-hour-plus newsreels that we found. Like, it might just be somewhere Maybe lost so. in there, along with some of the other samples mm-hmm. we weren't able to find. But Vern Troyer announces them. He goes, you know, if you want the worst, you know, you got the worst. Limp Bizkit. And right. I, that's my Vern Troyer impression. I'm very sorry. Right. And uh, <laughs> But Spin Magazine uh, reported that Wavy Gravy was also an announcer on that day. And that I do know is true. Wavy Gravy was there. There's no footage of this. Um, but I do know he was there. And he was like kind of like the mascot of Woodstock. And he announced them by saying, all right, enough of this mellow shit. <laughs> like... Wow, Wavy Gravy. Wavy Gravy. Spin Magazine reports Wavy Gravy was on stage and said, enough of this mellow shit. He will eat those words later. He will eat them like a pint of his own Ben and Jerry's ice cream. So... (laughs) What a sellout! <laughs> oh yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of foreshadowing in the beginning. There's of the a lot set, of foreshadowing. I feel like throughout the entire set, there's all sorts of weird lyrical grabs that you're like, oh, like you don't know how bad it's gonna get for you, <laughs> you know, after yeah. this. Right, right. But they they walk out on stage as this intro track is playing, and uh, Sam Rivers, the bassist, he comes out flipping just two of the meanest birds we've seen all festival. He is just steady, straight <laughs> arming two middle fingers out to the crowd. Like bass just dangling from his neck, like any he, he's kind of stumbling backwards, like he's like overpowered by how much middle finger he's giving. Like there's like a outside force driving through his hands to flip his fingers up, and like it's somehow making him stumble off balance. That's how it looks. It's so intense, and I feel well, like he's just grinding his teeth. It's right. It, well, that's that's my so the whole th- I, I, the thing about like. Wes Borland is he's like wearing this insane makeup and you can tell he's like taking a lot of time and thought into these weird costume he makes. And then I feel like Sam Rivers like jumps out of bed <laughs> with like an Adidas tracksuit. But then he just like he just like has his eyes really wide. Yeah. And he's just like, I'm going to open my eyes as wide as I can. And that'll be my Dude, and he's and fucking scarier like- than Wes Borland. 
<laughs> I mean, he looked like he's going to like beat you up for meth. Like but. if I worked at a gas station and I'm working the graveyard shift, it's like it's like 3 a.m. <laughs> and Sam Rivers in 1999 walks in. I'm fearing for my life. <laughs> like I'm like, those this is the drifter like with the fucking hatchet that's going to like fucking yeah. kill me and steal all the fucking menthols. But uh, so, OK, Westmoreland classic form, you know, the drag queen football player. Everyone else is like Sam Rivers is wearing track pants and a shirt. Fred Durst up for worse dressed, uh, being that he was a front man in one of the biggest <laughs> bands. Just fucking baggy ass dicky skate shoes, a D.C. shirt as if he was getting paid by them. I know he was friends with a lot of skaters and stuff and maybe even the owners of the company. So maybe there was like some like, hey, dude, you should wear this shirt since you're going to be pay-per-viewed to like millions of people. Or that's just what he would have fucking worn. Uh, and he repped DC shoe a lot. I mean, I think, oh God, this is so embarrassing. I'm pretty sure he he is why I bought DC shoe. Now that I'm, I'm having like one of those like on air revelations because I yeah. bought a lot of DC <laughs> shoe, and I think it's because of Fred Durst. You didn't even know. Oh, yeah, I didn't even know. But he does advertising he's not is valuable. His, his signature red New York cap. No, no, he's wearing a What's black up with that? He needs cap. But he's in New York. I don't know. Uh, yeah, kind of weird. Well. Uh, mm, there's a lot to that. I don't know. We could go. That's a, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> the the the, con, the conspiracies behind his hats yeah. and what they <laughs> what they symbolize. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it was a plant. You know, because John Sher said that there was. He believed a clandestine cult started all the riots, and maybe mm. Fred Durst was like a doppelganger, and that's how. And you only could know because he had a black hat on. Oh, he was and, the uh, Manchurian Durst. Yeah, <laughs> sent. Sent to start the riots. Yeah, exactly. The real, the real Fred Durst wouldn't have. Done We're getting into some Illuminati shit now. <laughs> All right, so they bust right into it, and the song they play is the first like actual track on Significant Other. Immediately, the pit is in full effect. I mean, like from mm -hmm. the second it starts, bam, and right. it is fucking crazy. And you spot some renegade shoulder titties uh, in the front. And like, <laughs> I am fearing for that girl's life. I mean, it is bad. And you know. Truth be told, there is there were several assaults that were, you know, reported to have happened during Limp Bizkit's set. Um, sure. I've never seen any reports that kind of write it out as detailed as we have seen with like the big one that happened during Corn. But mm -hmm. from the start, before I even started researching Woodstock 99 heavily, I knew that that happened. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like we all kind of right. knew like that's that was the thing that you knew about Woodstock 99 was that someone was raped during Limp Bizkit which mm -hmm. is you know, right. really, really heavy. But again, I'm going to say it's not the band's fault, but we'll get into that. Um, so yeah, they bust right into it. Everyone's going fucking crazy. And in the first song, right off the bat, Fred has some lyrics that I feel like are going to come back to haunt him later, you know? And there's no, again, there's no right. way he could have known from the first song of his set, how it would turn out by the end of it. But uh, this is what his, he says. Already talking about riots. Right. And again, but so, I mean, again, not, it's just like the blame, the blame, I guess. It's just, it's not that Limp Bizkit didn't say, hey, we want you to start riots. It's, but it's, we're talking about the culture. Right. That's, well, that's also, the, the culture. I mean, if, if you remember the timeline of Limp Bizkit, dude, like they played that song off of the album that hadn't come out yet. So no one knew that they had already, no, so it had just come out. It just come out. Okay. Like so then Woodstock 99 happens. And then right. everyone starts blaming them, listening to the thing, and they they're talking about starting the riots, and they're like, right. oh, you know, people are making this link right. that doesn't exist. Oh yeah, well, but yeah, when, when they recorded it, yeah, when they recorded 
the right. song. They, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so no one knew. And then the album comes out, and they're like, oh, dude, they're talking about that. And then in their music video for Rearranged, they're they're like on trial. And what they're on trial mm-hmm. for in the music video is Woodstock 99. And that's what they're right. being shown on video on TVs right. in the courtroom. But we're getting ahead yeah. of ourselves. Um, so yeah, Fred Durst, he's definitely uh, up for fucking worst dressed on that. I, I just you know, have that note here again because I'm just like, God damn it. But also Fred Durst never really was the the one for Flair. You know, like Jonathan Davis did it right. You know what I mean? But like, yeah. you can't say the same for Fieldy. Fieldy and John and Fred Durst look like they could be brothers. Um, yeah. And Fieldy is one of the many uh, very famous stage potatoes that you oh, can see prominently. Oh. And at one point right. he goes up to Fieldy and gives him like, yeah, you like jerseys? You like you like sports caps? <laughs> I like jerseys and sports caps. I see you too. have a tattoo. I like tattoos. It's like yeah. almost like Beavis like or like Butthead when like Butthead hits on a girl. Like, I see you have tattoos. I have tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like, yeah. And, and you know, a star was born. Um, the second song they play is the one that they feature on the official Woodstock 99 VHS DVD CD, which what I read in, uh, I believe it was either Rolling Stone or Spin. There was a plane going over, like a crop duster that was going over the concert grounds the entire time with a banner that said Woodstock 99 official soundtrack out soon. <laughs> it's like they're oh already advertising shit that God. they didn't have created, which is honestly the start of a ponzi scheme but the yeah the, mm-hmm. the, it wasn't but that that's how you would start one they could have pre-sold those cds and then never come out with one that would have been a ponzi scheme uh then they had um, people invest but, in it but they're already they're already there's already some pretty bad mic feedback so again you're getting some classic uh woodstock sound issues happening pretty early on with the microphone totally um yeah there's uh i don't know i don't have this is the thing as a as a fan of limp which i will like at that part of me as a fan i'm like not super stoked on some of the song choices and well there's this, some weird ones like again like that second song well and the second song is is also on significant other and basically on on three dollar bill y'all and significant other i don't think they did it on their next album which was uh chocolate starfish and hot dog flavored water hot dog flavored water <laughs> which is what the fuck but uh which honestly probably did better than both the other ones because like they created anthems and that's what killed them mm-hmm. you know and that's right. kind of what killed new metal is is this right. anthemic pop mentality to writing these songs right. that used to be for like transgressive youth right but um good point right you, you know what i mean but yeah. the the thing is with this song is he in and they have it on three dollar bill y'all where he just like says cities that they like and yeah, like he says something shout about out song yeah like i got lost outs in- yeah, it's a shout out to all the cities that they like. And then they and then he shouts out like at one point his sister. They shout out people that they work with, you know, bands that they like. Um, but he has this great line where he says, I got lost in Boston looking for the tea party. Yeah, <laughs> like, so like that's his- he also he also <laughs> says he has a transphobic line in there, too. Yes, he does. Uh, a boy named Tina spit on a boy in, in Pasadena. So, yeah, he spit on a boy <laughs> named Tina in Pasadena. That is that, and, and, immensely and, fucked up. I mean, maybe if you're spitting on anyone, that's fucked up. Uh, a boy named Tina. It could just be a guy like a boy named Sue and maybe him getting spit on made him into a stronger man like the song Boy Named Sue. But it also yeah, and, then he, and then he listened to Limp Bizkit. No, but just I mean, yeah, it's it's again just that it's that 90s like I don't understand it. So I'll make fun of it. Exactly. And yes, it's funny. Yes, it's that- it's. I don't want to say it's it, empty it's homophobia, but it's casual homophobia and, yeah. and transphobia, especially. I mean, yeah. that wasn't even a word back then. You know what I mean? Like people didn't mm-hmm. even know that you could be transphobic because they didn't know what trans was. Everything was just gay or straight to a lot of people, right. especially the kind of jocks that were that would fucking talk shit about it anyways. 
Um, right. But, you know, yeah. just me being the historian that I am, uh, when he says I spit on a boy named Tina, it reminds me of a very tragic true crime event, uh, the murder of Brandon Tina. Uh, who was a trans youth that was murdered in a hate crime. So I'm just like, did you know about that? Was that in the news or something? And that's why like you picked that up. I didn't like look it up to see if the timeline lines up, but like there's a pretty good chance <laughs> that, that, that like, I don't know that also is a stretch, but it just brings me back to it. It's a fucked up line. So it's there. It's there. And I mean, it's like, it's well, definitely there. you listen to the song and you're just like, well, whatever, you know, it's like this. I mean, I didn't think anything of it until a lot later. Right. Oh, of course. I didn't even know that that song existed until a lot later because I would probably because back in the day when I was a kid, I'd buy a CD from a popular band. I'm just listening to the singles and skipping everything else, dude. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I I wasn't like I didn't really like music. I still don't. Um, They do have the most stage potatoes, though. Uh, You you mentioned that they absolutely do. And it's star studded. There's Puff Daddy at the time. He was Puff Daddy. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. Corn Kid Rocks up there. Joe C., um, is Just dancing seen. right next to John Otto, and they look like twins. Like it, they look like they're they, they look like they are fucking related as a motherfucker, dude. God, and I, I don't know like if they did that as a joke because like why is Joe C so much closer to that dude than everyone is to anyone else? And it's like maybe it's like come on, like you're my buddy. Like <laughs> I don't He's know. Feel the beat. He's got to feel the beat. They look a lot alike. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. um, but one um, thing yeah. that 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 stage potatoes confirms though, because um. I ran into a little bit of trouble establishing the timeline because some sources were saying that Ice Cube played on Sunday, including the Spin Magazine, whereas most sources said he played on Saturday. So I really wanted to lock it down. And on YouTube, all the videos are dated as the Saturday. Um, You know, if you look up like Setlist, FM or whatever, Mm -hmm. it's listed as a Saturday. Right. But if you remember when we covered Ice Cube set, we said he brought Fieldy from Corn out. BLD from Corn right. is also on stage during Limp Biscuit. Same outfit. Same outfit. And doesn't. And Fred Durst says, Fred, Did you see Did you see Ice Cube? Did you see Ice Cube? Yeah. And you bet your Man, damn ass the people that reporters, went. Reporters, yeah. dude. You know we're that everyone that went and saw Ice Cube went and saw Limp Biscuit. And that is the That's kind true. of journalism you get here at Podcast <laughs> 99. <laughs> um, yeah. And so we've got, I've got another clip. And so they have the song. They they so they don't cover the Prince song, unfortunately. Right. I think if they covered the Prince song in this uh, set, a lot more people would know about it. But they have their own song called 1999, and uh, I want to play a clip from that with some more bad foreshadowing. Yes. So again, I mean, it's just, you know, he's, he's toying with it, but I guess what's weird is that, you know, the things we're talking about, like, Oh, security knows. Like it's one of those things where like you take like a band like Slayer that was just writing lyrics of just like truly like satanic evil yeah. like messed up stuff yeah yeah like, like cannibal corpse there's, uh, there's been such worse lyrical content than limp biscuit but the thing but, is limp biscuit took that attitude and made it relatable to the lowest yeah. common denominator you know what i mean yeah. it's like you can't like you can't even show like a meathead like a classic like jim bro meathead you know what i mean that kind of stuff right. Like Slayer or anything, and he'll just be like, "Oh, it's, it's like fucking Satan shit." But if you show him Limp Bizkit, they're all fucking on board, and it makes you just well, as it, angry. Yeah, because the I mean, the attitude is way more just like, "Get out of my face!" 
or you yeah. know, or <laughs> else. Fuck it's not even at? like or or I'll beat you up. It's like just literally or else. Like that could be a Limp Bizkit <laughs> song. You know. Well, like, Henry Rollins once in an interview said that he totally gets it. He said it's music for guys that sit in the Seven Eleven parking lot looking at you like the fuck you looking at. But then he right. also said yeah. that if he was 17 years old when that shit came out, it would be his favorite music because it's so uh, formulaic that it's built to make you feel the way it does. Yeah, I've I've heard that clip too. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to play it because I don't know what it's from, but right. uh, right. you know, I don't want to tread on anyone's toes. It's related, but yeah. So yeah, he he. But honestly, some of these like premonition like lyrics, it, they only seem like that because we know what happens. You know what I mean? At the time, again, there's no fucking telling you know right any of the shit that would that would happen but all the songs were totally built for jumping and for getting crazy and fred durst you know he's doing kind of the same i mean not to say that he he did the same thing every night but he's doing the same show that he does you know what i mean and there's nothing like right right you have to that's how that's how you get there that's that's what you do when you're in entertainment you you have your show and then you have to deliver it you know 110 percent yes and yeah, so, and so, so there is so none of the, none of this. There's no like this isn't groundbreaking and like oh my god they're saying t-. like that's kind of the thing is like like you said it's like this relatable aggression because honestly most of their lyrics are not it's not groundbreaking in any way especially no, not in no, terms not of transgressive. I would say even less so than most other new metal bands. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I I'd say that's that's fair. You know what I mean? I don't and but, but I again, guess, I don't think that's what they were going for. You know what I mean? That right. was never their thing. They weren't the deep guys. Right. Wes Borland was the deep guy of the band. Right. You know. But they did and this I think leads into the next song they do where they but he Fred Durst did have a very specific intention of speaking directly to the crowd and trying to get a reaction out of them. Definitely. Yeah, they they cover a ministry song and it's done I mean like even if you're if you're a ministry fan, which I'm not, I'm not really, you know, I'm not really that familiar with their stuff, but like y- you probably wouldn't even know it was a cover unless you really heard the lyrics. That's like kind of the only right. giveaway. And, and Fred and they only do the lyrics for like the first minute of it, and then they use right. it as a vehicle to do this like extended crowd work thing. Right, and the crowd work is really what sets Limp Bizkit apart, like they're set to to the two bands that are going to come after them, which is Rage Against the Machine and then Metallica. It's like the reason, and and then you know the reason why Corn didn't explode the way Limp Bizkit did is because of this crowd work. You know what I mean? They played their songs, and uh, even I believe it was uh, Lars Ulrich from Metallica. He said like, "Yeah, we learned a long time ago that if a crowd is a certain way." You don't add fuel to the fire. Like you don't need to tell a super rowdy crowd to fuck shit up because they already right. are. And the more you do that, the more of a chance there is that people are going to get hurt. The show's going to get shut down and something bad's going to happen. But that was Limp Bizkit's fucking thing because they're a party band at their core. I truly believe that. You know right. what I mean? And they had been emb- they embraced controversy, and so this was no different. Right. Yes. You know? com- completely. So. The, the reverb work here is crucial, and even though, and this is going to be kind of a long sample here, but I want you guys at home to hear how tense it is, how intense it is. I feel like it really mm-hmm. does come through through the audio. So he's going to do this crowd work that gets everyone worked up into a fucking frenzy and then do it again right afterwards. And it's kind of yeah. interesting that he would spend so much time doing this and be the only band that did and be the only band that had the like the controversy that they did, you know, the reputation that they got from Woodstock 99.
There's some serious energy in this fucking place. How many people saw Ice Cube? All right. All right. All right. Are you people on the side? So it's like, I mean, it gets me stoked. You know what I mean? It's like, I would hate to be in that crowd. I would hate to be in any of the Woodstock 99 crowds, but especially this one. And I feel like the people that wanted to get out or the girls that were scared or were starting to get groped or, 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 you know, like things were starting to really brew, you know, or if you were too young, like if you're like 16 and you're trying to be like cool guy and all of a sudden you're in like the front pit of Limp Bizkit at Woodstock 99, like it you don't want him to keep doing this and he keeps doing it and doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's but uh, again, yeah. I mean, if it's like, a, but if it's a, con- if it's a controlled scenario, I mean, you and I, you know, we've been in mosh pits and like when you, you know, a controlled scenario that it, it can be really fun. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think there is a moment where he even says kind of early on, I don't remember where, but he's just, he's like, you know, Hey, if someone falls, pick him up. Yes, he does so, say that. Yeah, I mean, he says something like that. No, yeah, he definitely says that. You know, and and that's classic mosh pit stuff. Um, oh, uh, speaking right. of other things he said that we didn't uh, play a sample for, one of the things that gets cut out is Fred Durst's famous uh, line, where where he says, uh, "Take your Birkenstocks and shove them up your ass." Right. Is that, is that, what, is that what? I I wish that we had that clip. I know. Well, I'm gonna find it uh, again. Some of the because the pay per view stuff was edited down by a good chunk. Uh, we, we recently found out, which makes tons of sense. Um, but we'll we'll dig that up some somehow. 
Um, but another thing to yeah. mention about their set when you watch it is that Limp Bizkit had brought their own camera crew. And it was the first time right. that they had done that. But so like the reason why their set is so kind of dynamic visually as opposed to everyone else's is because they had their own guys like DJ lethal. The big Mm -hmm. breakthrough thing was that he had essentially nowadays it would just be a GoPro, but he had like a tiny camera on his DJ booth. And then, uh, you know, John Otto, the drummer had a tiny camera like up in the shit that Mm -hmm. he could look down on while he was like doing counts. You know what I mean? Right. Like it was just these little extras. Cause they, they, they really, they were, he knew about the marketing and the presentation. Yes. Yeah, and that's what I'll say. And I and I, I will say that I don't like. That's the thing is that even the recorded. It's like he was so good at that, but like yeah, I mean the performance itself. Like the, they're doing the energy, but it definitely there's there's plenty of better. Like I mean, even for even in the same style of music, like the Kid Rock one is like yeah, and like corn, and and right, yeah. This one, I mean, this one's just this one is the chaos. Where it, I mean, it doesn't even like sound that good. Yeah, I think a lot of it does like sound good. Like I think, like, but but sometimes it, it doesn't. You know what I mean? But I think like when it's like the jump up and down, like fat riffs. I think that's all right. the sound guys prepared for, um, and that's why. Yeah, that's a ph fat by the yes. way. Yes. Oh yeah, major uppercase p and yeah. h, uh, <laughs> if you will. But yeah, I I, I don't know. Um, it, it's. I, I get, yeah, I think some of it does sound really good, but also I see what you're saying where there is more of kind of like a a more punk quality to the sound, if you will, you know, if that's what you want to call. Yeah, it. If, that, if that's what I want to call it. Um, <laughs> one thing Oh, I have written here, you can see Fieldy at one point when I was like studying him, like in studying his clothes to make sure like to line up the timeline. Uh, he takes a sip of his beer and then just spits it out on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And then and then when oh, and then God. it goes back to to the band and Wes Borland has now lost his shirt. He's now shirtless, revealing that he has a unlegible tramp stamp tattoo. Uh yes, he does. A lower back tattoo for those uh that were raised right. Um and then Fred <laughs> asks the crowd, uh he says, Where are the fellas in the house? And check this out. Let me hear all the fellas in the house. Yeah, it's it's like a war cry. It's like Braveheart. That's scary. Yeah. Yeah, that's scary. The fellas are definitely showing up for Limp Bizkit. Um, I, I think later he does ask where the ladies are at, and it's more of like a cry for help. Um, but oh, I, I lost yeah. that. <laughs> I lost that that little bit there, that that sample. Um, oh, dude, remember this. Okay, so because we watched this all together to do a, a commentary on the set, and we couldn't stop talking about the roadie. Do you remember the roadie that's at the front of the stage? He's like... Probably six foot eight. Oh, like, His name's probably Big John oh, yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. Like uh like yeah. the song Big John, but also like the roadie <laughs> from uh Brett uh Brett Michaels Rock of Love, <laughs> his assistant. Oh right, Big John. <laughs> <laughs> Big John just picking Love up all show. of Brett's sloppy seconds. But uh yes. he's like the scariest roadie of all time. He looks like the techno Viking, yeah. if you remember that video. Like yes, this guy is yes, fucking jacked. He's wearing boots with socks that just scream. I mean, business shorts and a tank top. Right. Hair's pulled in a pony beard, goatee. This guy will fuck you up and but, your girl, but not. Yeah, but not like jacked. Like you see like Instagram model. No, he's not cut. Like all the tone. he's not cut. Like just he's just a big. big, big guy. Yeah. Like this guy kicked the shit out of a cut Instagram model. He that I mean. He probably, I feel like that's OG Jacksonville crew. You think so? I'm going to say. <laughs> I think that guy's from Jacksonville. Yeah. <laughs> a big city for a big boy. 
Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> they make them big. They 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 love it. They like it. Uh, so then then this starts one of the major highlights of the set. The guys that start crowd surfing uh, on the plywood start. They start getting closer yeah. before it started in the distance mm-hmm. when, when Fred talks about it and they start coming closer and closer. And now they're up in the front. And um, we actually were contacted by a fellow recently on our email who was kind enough to send us his Woodstock experience. And oh yeah, wait, what's his name? Oh, I'm gonna tell you his name. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell oh, you his okay. name in okay. just a second. But um, All right. I'm going to read uh, with his permission. I, I got his permission. We are going to read his story because he was one of the guys that crowd surfed on. The plywood. Right, right. All right. So this was sent to us by Christopher. I don't want to read his last name just in case he's wanted or anything. I'll get his permission to thank him properly later. Uh, But he sent us this. He says, I was there at 15 years old. I didn't know I was going until around 8 p.m. Tuesday night. It was last minute and all by chance. I arrived late Thursday afternoon and I left Monday around noon. Five days of complete insanity that I was actually prepared for. I watched all of 94 live on MTV and the documentaries on 69, so I expected it to be the drugged-out refugee camp it was. I didn't expect to even survive, so I wasn't disappointed at all. I had the time of my life. It was like living out an apocalyptic version of Dazed and Confused for me. I took shrooms for the first time and saw James Brown. I snuck into the beer gardens and drank with my older friends. I smoked weed with hippies and drank tequila with Mexicans. I held up the board that Fred Durst sang Faith on and briefly surfed on one of those boards myself. I crowd surfed for almost the entirety of Metallica's set, having the view of a camera crane, making it my favorite set by any band ever before or since, and possibly set a record for not touching the ground for 20 minutes at a time. Some random person who was leaving gave me a case of beer after Seven Dust, and I went to see RHCP, Red Hot Chili Peppers, The riot wasn't as scary as people like to make it out to be. I wasn't scared at all. I drank my free beer and watched it all unfold around me. I left that festival a much more accepting and open-minded person than I entered. Happy to have survived and been a part of music history. Thank you guys so much for doing this podcast and not only focusing on the negativity. That's great (laughs) stuff. (laughs) God, that's amazing. But that is funny. It's like, well, I wasn't scared. I wasn't a vendor or a woman. (laughs) <laughs> he uh, but I just want to say Chris yeah. has another there's a second part to this. Um you know, I'm just going to do it. I got to do it. Because the, there is okay. more limp stuff. Uh do it. Yeah, so so this is this is the second part of Christopher's story that he sent to us. And you too can be on this show if you just contact us at podcast99official at gmail.com. All right, this is back to do back it. to Christopher's story. Um, I, I had told him, uh, you know, that I wanted to read it on the podcast and all that stuff. Uh, he said, he said, yes. And then, uh, he said he didn't take any pictures, but he, he did get one of the Frisbees that we talked about being looted. He also got a free program. Um, then I asked him if he ever looked through the videos to find himself. And this was, uh, his, his response, right? He says, I'm in the first five seconds of the sad, but true video on YouTube crowd surfing up front center to the bottom, right? As it pans black shirt, shorts, My back is to the camera, then I'm flipped over. Without pausing, perfect quality, and a big enough TV, I'm in the epic shot of the blind pit from Korn, which is the most epic mosh pit of the entire festival, without a doubt, folks. Uh, He says, I was between the Alamo, which is one one of the sound towers was dubbed, 
and the stage. So hard to find me. I started trying to escape after blind, but it just went on as far as I could see. So I just gave up and fought for the rest of the set. I thought I was going to get killed. I was so beat up. I went back to camp after and just listened to Bush from there. I bought a bunch of nitrous balloons on the way back and got so high. I thought REM was a play was a surprise performer when they started playing that cover, oh. <laughs> which is so awesome. Oh my god! Then he says Limp Bizkit looks worse, but it wasn't nearly as thick and pushy. I was able to move up pretty close to the stage during break stuff when the tower next to me started swaying. I remember him pointing at the plywood surfer and looking back like. What the fuck is he pointing at? And why is he holding the mic up and not talking for five minutes? I ended being at the perfect spot for faith. I tried so hard to climb up there with him, but it wasn't happening. So that's crazy that we were contacted like that. We love those kinds of fucking stories. And uh, yeah, that that guy was on the fucking plywood that we're talking about. So another note I have here is that Limp Bizkit, another like really aggro brute thing that they do is they use gang vocals. Gang vocals is like, the classic trope in like heavy music where it's like bunch of guys, they're not singing. They're just like, we do yeah. this. And, and right, right. Lynn Bizkit has tons of that. Yeah. And that shit gets bros pumped as a motherfucker. Um, right. At one point they go into a really slick kind of jazzy funk bridge. That that's pretty good. Um, oh, and we've talked about Fred Durst's vocal stylings. He has a whine that he does. Yeah. It's like, Famous. Yeah, it's like the famous huh. Fred Durst wine, you know, and he's got so much wine, yeah. he should start a vineyard. Um, but I have a, a perfect like example of him doing the wine vocals. So we're gonna play that really quick. <laughs> Why? Why you gotta be like that? Why? Why you wanna be like that? sounds like this it's 1999 yeah warriors it's like that kind of a thing it's it's weird i don't know that's him being twisted though that's him being twisted inside um that is they play their uh, ballad rearranged uh you know they go into you know they do break stuff which is the biggest fucking song of the set the song break stuff this is if you could boil the entire Woodstock 99 down into one song, that is the reason why people think of Woodstock 99 the way they do. It is Limp Bizkit, Limp Bizkit break stuff. stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, that's kind of my, my f- favorite song of theirs. I, th- I think it's the, the perfect new metal song. Yeah. I it agree. Has, it, the, the song has two notes. It's just two <laughs> notes over and over again. I mean, yeah. And, and he, he like precedes the song with this like long drawn out intro where he's kind of getting everyone riled up. Cause again, you know, they played rearranged, oh, yeah. which all their songs are heavy. Don't get me wrong, but rearranged is definitely the kind of like breather. It has a chill. Yeah. It has a little bit. It has like two minutes of not distorted guitars. <laughs> right. Which is a lot for, for these folks. For so yeah, check right. this out. This is Fred Durst getting ready to play the infamous break stuff. Hey, let me ask you a personal question. How many people here really like NSYNC? Perfect. Perfect. How many people here ever woke up one morning 
and just decided it wasn't one of those days and you're gonna break some shit. everyone's on board now. Like when they hear those first two chugs, it's like it, they could have started playing the Benny Hill theme right afterwards. It wouldn't have fucking right. mattered because he just said all that shit. It's time break to break some shit. shit. Yeah. 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 So this is again, where you get into that, it, you know, you can see where people are starting to draw some conclusions Right. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and I mean, it's like, hey, well, we just happened to write a song called Break Stuff. <laughs> I mean, the jury, it's up to you. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, people most certainly started breaking stuff. I mean, that's when they start pulling the, the wood off of the towers. That's when they start, mm-hmm. um, you, know, you know, bringing the plywood up. That's when people start climbing shit, throwing stuff. That's when it gets really, really fucking heavy. And Fred has this whole thing during the bridge of the song where he's talking about you got to take in the, you know, you got to take all that negative energy and, and you got to release it. And like he's saying it from a perspective of like, you need to release your negative energy and take in the positive energy. And we're all going to create positive energy now. That's completely lost on this crowd. They just hear like, yeah, I'm going to take this fucking negative energy and fuck my boss and my girlfriend's a bitch. And then they fucking just like start breaking everything. It's fucking crazy. And it totally like, yeah, it's it's insane. But that that kind of brings us towards the end of the set, because right after that song, you know, is is when they start having some major technical problems where they cut. They cut Fred's mic is what happened. And no one knew. Mm That that's what happened, but it's very clear when you watch it that that's what happens because uh, someone's freaking out backstage, like, "Yo, he just told everyone to break stuff, and they did it." Yeah. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> How do tell them to unbreak it. I don't know, but uh, yeah. fix. Write a song called "Fix Stuff." <laughs> <laughs> God damn yeah, dude, it. Tell him to play rearrange. Yeah. Again. Oh my we God. Rearrange the plywood wall. Dude. Waka waka. You son of a bitch. You're, you're, you're killing me. Jesus, dude. So while he's while his mic is cut, he's, he's, he's really getting into it. But the thing is the, the fucking silver lining is that the mic was only cut to the audience, the pay-per-view. You can still hear everything he's saying as if nothing happened. Mm-hmm. So it took us a while to figure out what the fuck was happening. And it, here, let's just listen to it. I'm going to play the entire time that Fred's mic isn't working, where he has no idea, and then eventually he's literally taking a show of hands, like to who can who can hear. Right. I like that. <laughs> hey man, I'm surfing this motherfucker the right way. A perfectly good orange juice. I want to hear everybody in the house repeat after me. Say fuck, Limp Biscuit. Fuck, Limp Biscuit. That's right. Fuck you too.
can't hear me? Oh. Hey, what's wrong with the fucking mic? Can you guys hear me? Can you people hear me out there? Put your hands up if you can hear me. I guess you can't hear me. That's a tight beat, right? Hey man, is the fucking mic working or not? Hey Phil, give me some kind of signal. That's some tight shit right there, that crowd surfing on the plywood. has no idea and i love that someone fucking even even fred durst like the king the godfather of woodstock 99 we'll say that a million times that the wet limp biscuit especially fred durst the godfathers of woodstock 99 even some someone threw shit at him yeah someone threw oh a, yeah the orange juice <laughs> someone threw a That's fucking a really good orange juice yeah so someone threw a fucking uh yeah an orange juice out it was probably a sunny d considering it was the 90s uh <laughs> you know what i mean just like an ice, it's almost like a commercial. Like someone should have hucked an ice cold, like ice on the side, fucking Sunny D, and he just like catches it midair and refreshes himself. Not the case. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll also say like playing some shows. Like, there's no faster way to get a sound guy to turn on your mic than to just yell into the mic, "Hey, my mic's not fucking working." Yeah, <laughs> you know, like everyone. Everyone loves that guy. Loves that, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, dude, no, I, I love being told how to do my job, you fucking dick. But uh, but his mic really wasn't working because they shut it down. And then if you watch the footage, yeah. you'll see that during there's that moment, cut. there's a big cut. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Oh, there's definitely a huge cut. And what that cut is is what happens is this guy comes out and he tells Fred. Hey, there's a problem. They're telling us backstage that you're inciting a riot and things are way too heated out there and you need to tell everyone to calm down. So what gets cut out of this set, which we don't have the sample for right now because we've seen it in newsreels. It's not pulled from the actual set because they edited it out probably when they showed it because they didn't want anything to seem like it was bad. But they right. he, Fred Durst says, hey, they want me to tell you guys to mellow out. I don't want you to mellow out, but I don't want anyone getting hurt either. And then they kick right. his mic back on. They play Nookie. It's transcendent, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and 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 it's amazing. And that's a really heavy song too. But it it has, I guess, like it lean, some of it leans a little bit more towards the rearranged style of, of heaviness, you know. It's like, yeah, but then he's doing the whole like bitter. This is the ultimate. It's, bitter it's a bitter. Yeah, it's a bitter man song. song. Yeah, it's so, a bitter I mean, song. Yeah. So it's like not 
I don't know. Well, I just I've, mean like I've the notes, the like like, you know, like just like the actual like like musically, like some of the notes, right. like not lyrically. The, the yeah. verse, the verses are more subdued than a typical, you know, Limp Biscuit verse. Right, and say. that was like their hottest track. You know what I mean? Like you hear the crowd erupt mm-hmm. when the, when they start it. Um, and yeah, it's I, I guess like the first part. It's like a it's a mix between like DJ Lethal who. I met like, yeah, when, when fucking uh, Josh and I met DJ lethal and he told us that that was like the craziest show of his life and the craziest backstage show of his life, which mm-hmm. is interesting considering that Mike from spin said that, uh, you know, the last survivor we had on, he said that it was like super fucking boring back there, but I yeah. doubt they were doing the same. Well, things. Maybe, yeah. Maybe <laughs> we didn't see the limp biscuit. Cause I mean, limp, I could imagine they were, they were hot at the moment. Yeah. I it was probably that. the shit to be there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, 100%. <laughs> but so, so the song Nookie ends, and which also has a huge drawn out like we got to be positive, take the negative, all the shit in your life. Right. You got a problem more with me, more. you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, he they they play they end with their famous breakout hit, their cover of the George Michael song Faith, right. which is massive. It was in my recollection, it's the first song to truly accent the turntable usage in a metal song. Like DJ Lethal basically takes a solo at the end, which mm-hmm. is like what like everyone was like, holy shit, that's that new yeah. sound. Um right. yeah. You know what I mean? And that also gives us what we consider to be the Jimi Hendrix moment of Woodstock ninety nine. It's it's not Wyclef trying to play the Star Spangled <laughs> Banner. It's not anyone trying to play the Star Spangled Banner. It's not the guitarist of Lit doing it with or you know doing a solo with right. a, a vibrator. It's not uh, yeah. It's not fires. It's not peacetime during Willie Nelson's set. It, it's not any of that. The Jimi Hendrix moment of Woodstock 99 is when Fred Durst comes down into the crowd. He gets up on a piece of plywood that's being held up by the crowd and sings the song Faith. Yes. And so he is effectively he's gotten in there and he's now touching the chaos. <laughs> he's, he's part of it. He's no longer just commenting. He's now crowd surfing. Yeah, it's the connection. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's so iconic. Yeah. And you'll you'll see just look up any major publication story of, of Woodstock ninety nine and you're gonna see a picture of this because it's mm-hmm. fucking crazy. You know what I mean? I mean yeah. it's I think it's crazier that people in the crowd were doing it way off yonder because you know, that mega roadie that we were talking about, you can see him like firmly grasping the fucking board, like you're not gonna fly away with my friend, like not not on my watch. I haven't lost a single fucking singer to a crowd yet, and I'll be damned if it's gonna happen at Woodstock. And but like that, it's intense. And dude, and he's not like taking it easy up there. He's jumping around and rocking out on this fucking wood. And the lighting, yeah. like if you when you see pictures of it, it comes off so different than when you see the footage because the footage, mm-hmm. it's you know all the stage lights are on it. You can tell it's getting darker. When you see pictures, it just looks insane you can see the sweat yeah. on everyone you can see how yeah. nasty it is the colors the mm-hmm. stains that does the look yeah. on people's faces it, it's way intense yeah it's it's wild it's wild yeah but that is the moment that that is the Jimi hendrix mm-hmm. moment in my opinion i agree that that agree. galvanizes it you know yeah um so then the set ends and that's it i mean there's no encore there's no like one more like there's no new song right. they End it, lights go down, they start walking off the stage. Now, what you can see for a brief second, and I've seen more footage of this in different newscasts and different videos we've seen, when he wa- when Fred Durst specifically gets backstage, he, he, he's handed a towel, 
he's wiping off and then a guy kind of puts his arm around him and is talking to him and what he's telling him what he ended up telling him was the sheriff's department is here and they're trying to charge you guys with inciting a riot mm-hmm. and and they were trying right. because i guess there was so much damage being done that they're like okay like Someone's got to be held accountable for this, and of course, John Cher, Michael Lang—they're not going—they're not going to fucking take any part of that. Oh, it's the band. He told them to fuck shit up. They have a song called right. "Break Stuff," and right. that's kind of what starts that whole lore of Limp Bizkit destroying mm-hmm. everything. And the charges, of Absolutely. course, they were never charged for anything. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they had right. a, a lawyer or a super hot shot manager at the time that was like, mm-hmm. "Yeah, no, you don't need to go into their trailer." Right. First of all, where's your warrant? Right. And second of all, no, 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 they didn't do shit. And but, watch what happens when Rage plays next. You know, right? But beyond beyond the charges themselves, which I mean, obviously, you know, wouldn't have necessarily been that big, but it it completely started the the press. The press was just like, "All right." Here's the thing, you know, we can take this and go with it. So they did get, again, just part of this history of controversy is like when the dust settled, it was just like Limp Bizkit and people were already kind of like, we already kind of hate this band anyway. So like, let's right. just, let's just blame them for it. And um, there, I do have like a quote of, you know, Durst cause they, I mean, they did do, they tried to do some damage control. Oh, definitely. And, and, uh, and, they, and they've been interviewed a lot about that, it. Yeah. You know, a lot of, people said is that you're so far away from there. Like, you know, he didn't see anyone getting hurt and like, he didn't, you know, he didn't watch like wherever they ripped that plywood, you know, he didn't watch them do that. You know, someone did it and then crowd surf with it. And he's like, Whoa. Now, I mean, again, I'm not trying to like, nec- I'm, I'm trying to just toe the line. I don't, I'm not trying to like give it a pass. Cause like, I feel like if you were to see that, you'd be like, that's weird. But, you know, you're trying to play a show. Like, so many things are going on. Well, he was crowd surfing on wood. It's not like he went out there and was like, oh, like, this means a crime just happened or something. No, yeah, exactly. I would have, you know. It's not like, yeah. Any good showman would have done the same thing. Violence in itself at that very moment. You're watching 200,000 people in a crowd. Right. Yeah, exactly. You see it as one. You don't see, you know, you see a group. You don't see the individuals. Um, mm-hmm. So after they walk off stage, Brother Weiss comes out, our, our our friendly, raspy-voiced announcer from the main stage, and he's really trying to tone it down for everyone because now it's a problem for everyone. Because keep in mind, right. after Limp Bizkit, after all of that crazy shit, all that destruction, there's still Rage Against the Machine, an arguably more intense band, you know, just mm-hmm. like viscerally, and then you have uh, right. you have Metallica. You know, which is just a one of the founding fathers band. of fucking yeah. straight up metal. It's like, right. <laughs> so you got they, they got their work cut out for them. I'm sure the Peace Patrol was like, fuck this. But uh, right. so, yeah, let, let's take a listen to Brother Weiss really quick, trying to quell the crowd after they're yeah. done playing. All right. All right. All right. Woodstock getting a little scary. Getting a little bit scary. We got some hurt human beings. This is Woodstock Nation. We're all in this together. You've got hurt brothers and sisters right in here amongst you. And we have to find a way to get them out so that they live through this. We gotta chill a little bit. Let's chill, catch our breath. You wanna see Metallica? We'll never make it if we go nuts for Rage Against the Machine and do what's happening. Rage is gonna play, we gotta have we gotta have a good time. We gotta have a time where we don't hurt each other. There's hurt people. There's hurt people here and they're your brothers and sisters. 
and our brothers and sisters. And that's the set. That is Limp Biscuit, the legendary, the infamous, the most notorious set of Woodstock '99. Whew. That that's it. It's a doozy. There's a lot that's there, it. I, but it's it's yeah. I don't know. You know, it's crazy because yeah, there was a lot of good like little snippets we wanted everyone to hear, but watching it wise, I mean, minus like some of the crowd surfing stuff, it's really not as crazy as some of the other. Like you know, when I watch corn, I'm I'm way more fearing for everyone's safety than I am during Limp Bizkit set, and that's right. even what the I, guy said in the email. He said, um, you know, what, what Christopher said. He, he said, you know, corn fearing for my life, got the shit kicked out of me, couldn't get out. Limp Bizkit, I went right up to the front, got on the plywood. It was awesome. So for, yeah, I don't know. Party I mean, band Fred versus Durst, twisted band. I don't yeah, know. he's he is ready. He is ready and just accepting your hate. He wants it and is an easy guy to to hate. Not, and again, we've talked about their lyrics and there's definitely lyrics that I think the fact that they that they were so popular was representing this like larger social undercurrent of that would be connected to the behavior, but you're getting into shit that's way more of like sort of an analysis of society that you can't necessarily pin down on just like, oh, they played this one song. Right. It's, it's kinda, so much it's kinda bigger kinda than all that. these elements. Again, uh, that's the whole thing about Woodstock. We're talking about all these things that happened at Woodstock that led to it. Um, but then you always have that one little, you have, what is it? Like the straw that broke the camel's back, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So many things contributing. And then, you, but then it always kind of, it's funny how it always ends up where there's just this one little thing and you're like, oh, that's what did it. Right. And, and I mean, keep in mind, no one let anything on fire, you know, like we still have a whole nother fucking day <laughs> to, to, yeah. to get to that shit. So exactly. my, my big takeaway is that, yes, the Limb Bizkit set was chaotic. It was intense. It was probably frightening to be in there. There were sexual assaults that were reported happening during that set specifically. Yes. But Limb Bizkit as a band and as personalities were not to blame for the chaos that ensued at Woodstock 99 and we're just mm-hmm. part of the overall experience more than anything right. else. And right. but now but now what we've got and what Ryan and I have too is just we're, you're you're smack dab in this shit sandwich. Because <laughs> right you don't you can't really you don't have the luxury to go, well whose fault was it? Cuz now at this point you're like god, we're in the middle of this festival. We have to like get we have to finish this festival. Yeah, you know? exactly. So Stay along with us. I know. Don't don't just stop listening because we did the. We finally got to Limp Bizkit. We got so oh, much, so more much more shit. good stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. Awesome. Well, that's gonna be it for us today. I'm Ryan Lichten here with Parks Miller. We'd like to thank Gray Holger at Contradict Sound for all of his technical assistance. If you went to, worked at, or played Woodstock '99, please contact us at Podcast Ninety Nine Official at Gmail dot com or on Instagram at Podcast Ninety Nine. For exclusive Podcast 99 and Culture Dumps uh, content, motherfucker goddamn, please subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash culture dumps. Thanks, and uh, we'll see you at Woodstock.